Welcome back, having Brainiacs, to the podcast, talking about Long Ago and Far Away, Chapter 1. I really liked it. really liked the simplicity of the prose and the nostalgia. Um, I liked the characters. I thought it was great. Of course, there are the glaring issues with the <laughs> the latent and blatant racism, uh, but what, what do you do, you know? Um, I can. It's a weird thing where I still feel like that child, even though he was completely twisted in his views of race, was still a, just an innocent child. And the author, having grown up and looking back fondly at that, um... I don't know, it's like this weird thing where it's like, that's just the world they live in. And I don't know, it's weird. I I find that I can still find them to be a decent person, even though they're living in a world full of racism and they are part of that problem. So, yeah, I don't know. It's not going to ruin the book for me, but it is quite disgusting. Um, what were your initial thoughts on the prose style and what was your favourite of these early memories so far? Tech-rific. Haven't seen this guy for a while. Good to see you, Tech. The preamble started with a meditation on the nature of memories, mainly that they are unreliable, transitory and random. I loved that, the way that he described the, um, you know, the thing about the fog with the one or two shining, vivid sort of ornaments in that fog was cool, but the thing that I liked more was about how it's impossible to piece together the sort of the timeline of your history. So even when you do remember things clearly, it's kind of impossible to remember what order those things happened in. And I find that to be definitely the case when I try to string together in my head my own timeline of all the things I've done over the years. Anytime I tell a story about my childhood, in every single story, it's like when I was about 10. Because in my head, everything that happened as a child to me was when I was about 10. (laughs) Uh, And I've got no distinction between things that happened to me when I was like maybe six or seven and things that happened to me when I was probably 14 or 15. To me, it was just, yeah, I was about 10. Um, On occasion, you can, as the author did, have an epiphanic moment where those memories come flooding out of the dark in a more coherent narrative. It's interesting that an illness brought this about. The memory work acted as a relief from the pain and boredom of the illness. My curiosity was maybe it was the other way around. Maybe these lucid memories were being brought about by some kind of a pain relief. You know what I mean? Maybe he was tripping out <laughs> and on some kind of painkillers, morphine or whatever they had. And um, that was why you're so happy to sit and think about his past. We've discussed this before, says Tech, that we all construct our past and create narratives that make sense to us after the fact. It's self-medication in a very real sense. I liked the pro style. It was very straightforward, no bells and whistles, but to the point... In a strange way, I think this made my imagination so much more vivid and clear. The ombu trees, the grass and the pampas, Chichicho the dog, Captain Scott and the crazy hermit. I think the hermit was the memory that stuck out most for me. It was. I was thinking about that guy long after I finished the chapter. Yeah. 
very interesting character, and I think you wonder what depth is behind that character from before they kind of lost their mind, it seems, like he was a bit crazy. Um, yeah. And, but you also get the sense that that's it for him. Like, we won't really learn anything else about that character because they were enigmatic. Acoustic Eels, good to see you too, says, I think I have been to one of these giant trees. I went to Argentina in, Argentina in 2010 on the choir tour, and we found one of those trees while walking around Buenos Aires. We all are sitting under it, and someone took a photo. That's me, a, a lot younger, furthest to the right. <laughs> there you are under a huge tree. I swear I've seen those trees up in far north Queensland when we were up in Port Douglas, I reckon there was one of those. They're magnificent. They are absolutely amazing. The the, the width of that trunk, the fact that there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight people sitting in a row and you know, you would you would need another fifty people to surround that tree with people. In that photo. Um, from the Wikipedia page about the ombu tree, in a couple of sentences of the intro, it sounds like they took phrases straight from the paragraph Hudson wrote. Wow, very interesting. Maybe they did. Zok, again, another name, another blast from the past. Good to see you, Zok. Some interesting bits, but also it annoys me that the writing feels a little bit paternalistic. Racism, I don't know about the writer to know if he's sarcastic, but so proud and happy to be in charge of the little ones of a superior race is the most revolting turn of phrase I've read in a while. His evident privilege being in the richest family in the area, it seems. Kind of um, a running theme with these Hemingway list authors is that there are so many of them coming from a place of extreme privilege. Not all of them. But a lot of them, especially those poets that we've just been with, like they're all just rubbing shoulders with the royalty. And I'm sure that that's the only reason their poems were ever preserved in the first place. Zock loved this bit, though. When hard biscuits were given to him, he would carefully examine them. And if one was found chipped or cracked, he would return it, pointing out the defect and ask for a second. uh, Sorry, ask for a sound one in return. Funny. That detail I found funny because the kind of, I guess, audacity to be a beggar and a chooser at the same time um, and turning away a, a, a biscuit because, you know, the edge of it was chipped is hilarious <laughs> when you're wearing, you know, cobbled together cow skin. Um, we're off to a great start. I'm really enjoying the book and I'm pretty confident at this point that it's going to be a good one. So, um, let's move on and jump into chapter two. Chapter two, my new home. We quit our old home, a winter day journey. This is a little uh, preamble, I think it's called. Uh, A winter day journey, aspect of the country, our new home, a prisoner in the barn, the plantation, a paradise of rats, an evening scene, the people of the house, a beggar on horseback, Mr. Trigg, our schoolmaster, his double nature, impersonates impersonates an old woman, reading Dickens, Mr. Tig degenerates, 
Once more, a homeless wanderer on the Great Plain. And that's the end of the chapter. Just joking. Um, Here we go. The incidents and impressions recorded in the preceding chapter relate, as I have said, to the last year or two of my five years of life in the place of my birth. Further back, my memories refuse to take me. Some wonderful persons go back to their second or even their first year. I can't, and could only tell from hearsay what I was and did up to the age of three. According to all accounts, the clouds of glory I brought into the world, a habit of smiling at everything I looked at and at every person that approached me, ceased to be visibly trailed at about that age. I only remember myself as a common little boy, just a little wild animal running about on its hind legs, amazingly interested in the world in which it found itself. Here, then, I begin aged five at an early hour on a bright cold morning in June, midwinter in that southern country of Great Plains or Pampas, impatiently waiting for the loading and harnessing to be finished, then the being lifted to the top with the other little ones. At that time we were five. Finally, the grand moment when the start was actually made with cries and much noise of stamping and snorting of horses and rattling of chains. I remember a good deal of that long journey, which began at sunrise and ended between the lights some time after sunset, for it was my very first, and I was going out into the unknown. I remember how, at the foot of the slope, at the top of which the old home stood, we plunged into the river, and there was more noise and shouting and excitement until the straining animals brought us safely out on the other side. Gazing back, the low roof of the house was lost to view before long, but the trees, the row of twenty, five giant ombu trees, which gave the place its name, were visible, blue in the distance, until we were many miles on our way. The undulating country had been left behind, before us and on both sides the land, far as one could see, was absolutely flat. Everywhere green with the winter grass, but flowerless as the season, and with the gleam of water over the whole expanse. It had been a season of great rains, and much of that flat flat country had been turned into shallow lakes. That was all there was to see, except the herds of cattle and horses, and an occasional horseman galloping over the plain, and the sight at long distances of a grove or small plantation of trees, marking the site of an estancia, or sheep and cattle farm, these groves appearing like islands on the sea-like flat country. At length this monotonous landscape faded and vanished quite away, and the lowing of cattle and tremulous bleating of sheep died out of hearing, so that the last leagues were a blank to me, and I only came back to my senses when it was dark, and they lifted me down, so stiff with cold and drowsy that I could hardly stand on my feet. Next morning I found myself in a new and strange world. The house to my childish eyes appeared of vast size. It consisted of a long range of rooms on the ground, built of brick, with brick floors and roof thatched with rushes. The rooms at one end fronting the road formed a store where the people of the surrounding country came to buy and sell, and what they brought to sell was the produce of the country. 
hides and wool and tallow in bladders, horse hair in sacks and native cheeses. In return they could purchase anything they wanted, knives, spurs, rings, for sorry, rings for horse gear, clothing, yerba mate and sugar. Tobacco, castor oil, salt and pepper, and oil and vinegar, and such furniture as they required. Iron pots, spits for roasting, cane chairs, and coffins. A little distance from the house where were the kitchen, bakery, dairy, huge barns for storing the produce, and wood piles, big as houses, the wood being nothing but stalks of the cardoon thistle, or wild artichoke, which burns like paper so that immense quantities had to be collected to supply fuel for a large establishment. Two of the smallest of us were handed over to the care of a sharp little native boy, aged about nine or ten years, who was told to take us out of the way and keep us amused. The first place he took us was to, to was the great barn, the door of which stood open. It was nearly empty just then, and was the biggest interior I had ever seen, how big it really was, I don't know, but it seemed to me as big as Olympia, or the Agricultural Hall, or the Crystal Palace, would be to any ordinary little London boy. No sooner were we in this vast place than we saw a strange and startling thing, a man sitting or crouching on the floor, his hands before him, the wrists tied together, his body bound with thongs of raw hide to a big post which stood in the centre of the floor and supported the beam of the left above. Sorry, it supported the beam of the loft above. He was a young man, not, not more than twenty, perhaps, with black hair and a smooth, pale, sallow face. His eyes were cast down, and he paid no attention to us, standing there staring at him, and he appeared to be suffering or ill. After a few moments, I shrank away to the door and asked our conductor, in a frightened whisper, why he was tied up to a post there. Our native boy seemed to be quite pleased at the effect on us, and answered cheerfully that he was a murderer. He had committed a murder somewhere, and had been caught last evening, but as it was too late to take him to the lock-up at the village, which was a long distance away, they'd brought him here as the most convenient place, and tied him in the barn to keep him safe. Later on they would come and take him away. Murder was a common word in those days, but I had not at that time grasped its meaning. I had seen no murder done, nor any person killed in a fight. I only knew that it must be something wicked and horrible. Nevertheless, the shock I had received passed away in the course of that first morning in a new world. But what I had seen in the barn was not forgotten. The image of that young man tied to the post, his bent head and downward gaze, and ghost and ghastly face, shaded by lank black hair, is as plain to me now as if I had seen him but yesterday. A little back from the buildings were gardens and several acres of plantation, both shade and fruit trees. Viewed from the outside, it all looked like an immense poplar grove, on account of the double rows of tall Lombardy poplar trees at the borders. The whole ground, including the buildings, was surrounded by immense, an immense ditch or moat. 
Up till now, I had lived without trees, with the exception of those 25 I have spoken of, which formed a landmark for all the country round, so that this great number, hundreds and thousands of trees, was a marvel and delight. But the plantation and what it was to me will form the subject of a chapter by itself. It was a paradise of rats, as I very soon discovered. Our little native guide and instructor was full of the subject, and promised to let us see the rats with our own eyes as soon as the sun went down. That would finish the day of strange sights with the strangest of all. Accordingly, when the time came, he led us to a spot beyond the barns and woodpiles, where all the offal of slaughtered animals, bones and unconsumed meats from the kitchen and rubbish from a wasteful, disorderly establishment were cast out each day. Here we all sat down in a row on a log among the dead weeds on the border of the evil-smelling place, and he told us to be very still and speak no word, for, said he, unless we move or make a sound, the rats will not heed us. They will regard us as so many wooden images. And so it proved, for very soon after the sun had gone down, we began to see rats stealing out of the wood pile and from the dead weeds on every side, all converging to the one spot where a generous table was spread for them and for the brown carrion hawks that came by day. Big old grey rats with long scaly tails, others smaller and smaller still, the least of all being little bigger than mice, until the whole place swarmed with them, all busily hunting for food, feeding, squealing, fighting and biting. I had not known that the whole world contained so many rats as I now saw congregated before me. Suddenly our guide jumped up and loudly clapped his hands, which produced a curious effect, a short, sharp little shriek of terror from the Busy multitude followed by absolute stillness, every rat frozen to stone, which lasted for a second or two, then a swift scuttling away in all directions, vanishing with a rustling sound through the dead grass and wood. It had been a fine spectacle and we enjoyed it amazingly. It raised Mus de Camaras to the beast of immense importance in my mind. Soon he became even more important in an unpleasant way when it was discovered that rats were abundant indoors as well as out. The various noises they made at night were terrifying. They would run over our beds, and sometimes we would wake up to find that one had got in between the sheets and was trying frantically to get out. Then we would yell, and half the house would be roused and imagine some dreadful thing, but when they found out the cause, they would only laugh at at, at and rebuke us for being such poor little cowards. But what an astonishing place this was this to which we had come, the great house and many buildings and the people in it, the foss, the trees that enchanted me, the dirt and disorder, vile rats and fleas and pests of all sorts. The place had been for some years in the hands of a Spanish or native family, indolent, careless, happy-go-lucky people. The husband and wife were never in harmony or agreement about anything for five minutes together, and by and by he would go away to the capital on business, which would keep him from home for weeks, and even months at a stretch, and she, with three light-headed grown-up daughters, would be left to run the establishment with half a dozen hired men and women to assist her. I remember her well, as she stayed on a few days in order to hand over the place to us, an excessively fat, inactive woman who sat most of the day in an easy chair, surrounded by her pets, 
lapdogs, Amazon parrots, and several shrieking parakeets. Before many days, she left, with all her noisy crowd of dogs and birds and daughters, and of the events of the succeeding days and weeks, nothing remains in memory except one exceedingly vivid impression, my first sight of a beggar on horseback. It was by no means an uncommon sight in those days when, as the gauchos were accustomed to say, a man without a horse was a man without a leg, but it was new to me when one morning I saw a tall man on a tall horse ride up to our gate, accompanied by a boy of nine or ten on a pony. I was struck with the man's singular appearance, sitting upright and stiff in his saddle, staring straight before him. He had long grey hair and beard, and wore a tall straw hat shaped like an inverted flower pot with a narrow brim a form of hat which had lately gone out of fashion among the natives, but was still used by a few. Over his clothes he wore a red cloak, or poncho, and heavy iron spurs on his feet, which were cased in the botas di porto, or long stockings made of a colt's untanned hide. Arrived at the gate, he shouted, Ava Maria Purissima, in a loud voice then proceeded to give an account of himself, informing us that he was a blind man and obliged to subsist on the charity of his neighbours. They, in their turn, he, he said, in providing him with all he required, were only doing good to themselves, seeing that those who showed the greatest compassion towards their afflicted fellow creatures were regarded with special favour by the powers above. After delivering himself of all this and much more, as if preaching a sermon, he was assisted from his horse and led by the hand to the front door, after which the boy drew back the fo and, folding his arms across his breast, stared haughtily at us children and the others who had congregated at the spot. Evidently he was proud of his position as page, or squire, or groom, of the important person in the tall straw hat, red cloak, and iron spurs who galloped about the land collecting tribute from the people, and talking loftily about the powers above. Asked what he required at our hands, the beggar replied that he wanted yerba, mate, sugar, bread, and some hard biscuits, also cut tobacco and paper for cigarettes, and some leaf tobacco for cigars. When all these things had been given to him, he was asked, not ironically, if there was anything else we could supply him with, and he replied yes. He was still in want of rice, flour and farina, an onion or two, a head or two of garlic, also salt, pepper and pimento or red pepper, and when he had received all these comestibles and felt them safely packed in his saddlebags, he returned thanks, bade goodbye in the most dignified manner, and was led back by the haughty little boy to his tall horse. We had been settled some months in our new home, and I was just about halfway through my sixth year when one morning at breakfast we children were informed, to our utter dismay, that we could no longer be permitted to run absolutely wild, that a schoolmaster had been engaged who would live in the house and would have us in the schoolroom during the morning and part of the afternoon. Our hearts were heavy in us that day while we waited apprehensively for the appearance of the man who would exercise such a tremendous power over us and would stand between us and our parents, especially our mother, who had ever been our shield and refuge from all pains and troubles. 
Up till now, they had acted on the principle that children were best left to themselves, that the more liberty they had, the better it was for them. Now it almost looked as if they were turning against us, but we knew that it could not be so. We knew that every slightest pain or grief that touched us was felt more keenly by our mother than by ourselves, and we were compelled to believe her when she told us that she too lamented the restraint that would be put upon us, but knew that it would be for our ultimate good. And on that very afternoon, the feared man arrived, Mr. Trigg by name, an Englishman, a short, stoutish, almost fat little man with grey hair, clean-shaven, sunburnt face, a crooked nose which had been broken or was born so, clever mobile mouth, and blue-grey eyes with a humorous twinkle in them, and crow's feet at the corners. Only to us youngsters, as we soon discovered, that humorous face and the twinkling eyes were capable of terrible sternness. He was loved, I think, by adults generally, and regarded with feelings of an opposite nature by children, for he was a schoolmaster who hated and despised teaching as much as children in the wild hated to be taught. He followed teaching because all work was excessively irksome to him, yet he had to do something for a living, and this was the easiest thing he could find to do. He was such a man, sorry, how such a man ever came to be so far from home in a half-civilized country was a mystery, but there he was, a bachelor and homeless man after twenty or thirty years on the pampas, with little or no money in his pocket, and no belongings except his horse. He never owned more than one at a time, and it's cumbrous native saddle, and the saddlebags in which he kept his wardrobe and whatever he possessed besides, he didn't own a box. On his horse, with his saddlebags beside, behind him, he would journey about the land visiting all the English, Scotch and Irish settlers, who were mostly sheep farmers, but religiously avoiding the houses of the natives, with the natives he could not affiliate, and not properly knowing the and, and incapable of understanding them, he regarded them with secret dislike and suspicion. And by and by he would find a house where the there were children old enough to be taught their letters, and Mr. Trigg would be hired by the month, like a shepherd or a cowherd, to teach them, living with the family. He would go on very well for a time, his failings being condoned for the sake of the little ones, but by and by there would be a falling out, and Mr. Trigg would saddle his horse, buckle on the saddlebags and ride forth, over the wide plain in quest of a new home. With us, he made an unusually long stay. He liked good living and comforts generally, and at the same time, he was interested in the things of the mind which had no place in the lives of the British settlers of that period, and now he found himself in a very comfortable house where there were books to read and people to converse with who were not quite like the rude sheep and cattle farmers he had been accustomed to live with. He was on his best behaviour and no doubt strove hard and not unsuccessfully to get the better of his weaknesses. He was looked on as a great acquisition and made much of in the schoolroom. He was a tyrant and having been forbidden to punish us by striking, he restrained himself when to thrash us would have been an immense relief to him. But pinching was not striking, and he would pinch our ears until they almost bled. It was a poor punishment and gave him little satisfaction, but it had to serve. 
Out of school, his temper would change as by magic. He was then the life of the house, a delightful talker, with an inexhaustible fund of good stories, a good reader, mimic and actor as well. One afternoon we had a call from a quaint old Scotch dame in a queer dress, sunbonnet and spectacles who introduced herself as the wife of Sandy McLaughlin, a sheep farmer who lived about 25 miles away. It wasn't right, she said, that such near neighbours should not know one, one another. So she had ridden these few leagues to find out what we were like. Established at the tea table, she poured out a torrent of talk in broader scotch in her high-pitched croak cracked old woman's voice and gave us an intimate domestic history of all the British residents of the district. It was all about what delightful people they were and how even their little weaknesses, their love of the bottle, their meanness, their greed and low cunning, only served to make them more charming. Never was there such a funny old dame, or one more given to gossip and scandal-mongering. Then she took herself off, and presently we children, still under her spell, stole out to watch her departure from the gate, but she was not there, she had vanished unaccountably, and by and by, what was our astonishment and disgust to hear that the old Scotch body was none other than our own Mr. Trigg. That our needle-sharp eyes, concentrated for an hour on her face, had failed to detect the master who was so painfully familiar to us seemed like a miracle. Mr. Trigg confessed that play-acting was one of the things he had done before quitting his country, but it was only one of a dozen or twenty vocations which he had taken up at various times, only to drop them again as soon as he made the discovery that they one and all entailed months and even years of hard work if he was ever to fulfil his ambitions, desire, ambitious desire of doing and being something great in the world. As a reader he certainly was great, and every evening, when the evenings were long, he would give a two hours reading to the household. Dickens was then the most popular writer in the world, and he usually read Dickens to the delight of his listeners. Here he could display his histrionic qualities to the full. He impersonated every character in the book, endowing him with voices gestures, manner and expression that fitted him perfectly. It was more like a play than a reading. What should we do without Mr. Trigg, our elders were accustomed to say, but we little ones, remembering that it would not be the beneficent countenance of Mr. Pickwick that would look on us in the schoolroom on the following morning, only wished that Mr. Trigg was far, far away. Perhaps they made too much of him. At all events, he fell into the habit of going away every Saturday morning and not returning until the following Monday. His weekend visit was always to some English or Scotch neighbour, a sheep farmer, 10 or 15 or 20 miles distant, where the bottle or demijohn of white Brazilian rum was always on the table. It was the British exile's only substitute for his dear lost whisky in that far country. At home, there was only tea and coffee to drink. From these outings he would return on Monday morning quite sober and almost too dignified in manner, but with inflamed eyes and in the schoolroom the temper of a devil. On one of these occasions something, our stupidity perhaps, or an, inexplic in, an, or an exceptionally bad headache, tried him beyond endurance and taking down his revenk, or native horsewhip made of raw hide, from the wall he began laying about him with such extraordinary fury that the room was quickly in an uproar. Then all at once my mother appeared on the scene, and the tempest was stilled, 
Though the master, with the whip in his uplifted hand, still stood glaring with rage at us, she stood silent a moment or two, her face very white, and then spoke. Children, you may go and play now. School is over. Then, lest the full purport of her words should not be understood, she added, Your schoolmaster is going to leave us. It was an unspeakable relief, a joyful moment, yet on that very day, and on the next, before he rode away, I, even I, who had been unjustly and cruelly struck with a horsewhip, felt my little heart heavy in me when I saw the change in his face, the dark, still, brooding look, and knew that the thought of his fall and the loss of his home was exceedingly bitter to him. Doubtless my mother noticed it too, and shed a few compassionate tears for the poor man, once more homeless on that great plain, but he could not be kept after that insane outbreak. To strike their children was to my parents a crime. It changed their nature and degraded them, and Mr. Trigg could not be forgiven. Mr. Trigg, as I have said before, was a long time with us, and the happy deliverance I have related did not occur until I was near the end of my eighth year. At the present stage of my story I am not yet six, and the incident related in the following chapter in which Mr. Trigg figures occurred when I was within a couple of months of completing my sixth year. Ooh, Mr. Trigg, you nasty fellow. All right, folks, that's chapter two. Very cool. Very much enjoying this book. All right, see you on the subreddit, and I'll see you tomorrow.